Hey, Frank. I missed you. Hey, James. It's been a while. We're recording kind of late this week. Not to book behind the curtain here. (laughs) It truly is. We are recording this podcast as late as humanly possible on the night before it goes live. So this is happening in real time. So if you're listening on Monday morning, like this is literally hot off the presses. I mean, they couldn't print a newspaper as fast as we recorded, edited, and published this podcast, Frank. (laughs) Well, we better not mess up. I guess like in the early days, we did mess up and we've canceled episodes 15 minutes into them, but we haven't done that in a while. And uh, I hate to, uh, yeah, never mind. We're not going to do that. Moving on. (laughs) Well, it could be because we have now officially recorded our 140th episode. I mean, we're recording it now as we speak. And since it's 140th, you know what time it is, Frank. It's lightning top topic. It's lightning topic topic time. (laughs) That's right. Every 10th episode, we do a call for topics that you want us to discuss. And we do this all the time. Just go to mergeconflict.fm, hit that contact button, let us know what you want to hear. But this is really fun because we cover six topics, five minutes each. We try to keep it right to that five minutes, introducing the topic and deep diving into it. And also, it's really fun for us because we don't have to come up with the topic list. Although, we did spend about a half an hour going over the topic list to come up with the topic list. (laughs) You would think after 14 times, 13 times, I'm a programmer, I'm always off by one, that we'd be good at this uh, uh, lightning talk thing. But uh, no, uh, we got our our, uh, topics and we can do this. We're well-practiced professionals and we're going to have a good time. I think they're good topics. And we don't like to pre-announce them. We just like to flow on through. Just go right through. So let's kick it off, Frank, with a first one that came in from multiple listeners. They wanted us to talk about our thoughts, but also the long term of where the brand new feature of Xamarin Forms will go, which is visual, which I'll just catch everyone up to speed here really quick. This is an API that was introduced first with a visual option of material to bring theming essentially for specific controls or at a page level. So you can apply the material visual to your iOS and Android apps and you get material design on both of them and different sorts of looks and feel, but it aligns it across those two platforms. So that's visual. I know a lot about it, but I have no idea how much you've looked at it or know anything about it, Frank. James, I thought it was a completely different topic. What is the thing where you can do like the navigation and the shell layout? I bet you it's called shell, Xamarin Forms shell. Is that that? That is Xamarin Forms shell, correct. So we are not talking about that. We are talking about Xamarin Forms visual. And yeah, actually, I don't know much about it. Um, Pretty much you covered everything I know about it. So please enlighten me some more. Well, I was enlightened because we just did a .NET community stand up and we had Shane on from the Xamarin Forms team to talk about it. And visual has always been set up in this world of a lot of developers today, which we've talked about, need and want the native user interface on every single platform. So whether it's iOS app, it looks and feels like iOS with Cupertino, on Android with Material Design, or Fluent Design maybe on Windows or some Mac, you know, look and feel. Now, there are a set of... James, did you just call the iOS look and feel Cupertino? Yeah, Cupertino. That's what they call it. All right. Cool. Lesson learned. Today I learned. Well, I think that Apple doesn't give us an official 
you know, <laughs> they call it the human interface guidelines, but it's really, everyone calls it Cupertino. So cool. what visual does is it says, Hey, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce a, to a certain extent, a base set of custom renders that are themed the same. That's really what this is. So when you apply material developers here that are looking for a consistent look and feel across each platform, will get just that. They'll get a material design themed card view when they use a frame. Uh, they'll get a you know text entry that has the little placeholder that goes up a little bit. Uh, and they'll get a spinner progress bar that doesn't look like the Cupertino one that looks like <laughs> a material design one. Now, the coolest part of this though, Frank, is that while they're starting with material, it is a highly extensible visualization framework, which wow. means... That wow. you, Frank, can create your own visual. You can call it N graphics or N control <laughs> or Skia or anything else that you possibly want. And you can then write your own custom renderers that apply at that level. So this isn't more about, I want to create a custom render because I need to do something. It's more like, I want to create this custom renderer that overrides the default theming and styling with one single property across every single one. Um, and that's very, very nice. So you can actually change the look and feel and the functionality of it. And it's that customization, which really takes it to another level. Uh, and for instance, you can even override the material renderer with your own renderer on top of it. So they do cascade. But the other perk of it here is that when they were building this framework, they uh, optimized it and they use fast renders everywhere and they remove a bunch of layers to these controls to a certain extent. So to me, this is like the new default. Like I've been taking my Hansel and Forms app. I've been applying it. You can do it at a page level or a control level. And I'm already blown away because I think that we've talked about it. The material design for many of the components look and feel better than the default Cupertino. So there's my visual update, Frank, that I just wow. blow your mind. You left me 30 seconds to just ask you lots of questions. <sighs> so, James, no, this is super cool. Uh, it almost feels like a big architectural improvement to forms. And I'm really interested to see what people do with it. I'm also a little bit scared as someone who implements a backend for Xamarin Forms of how hard it is to integrate into, say, we. And so uh, I think it's interesting from that standpoint. And it'll probably prevent me from having to put my um, like my text box, my label, my <laughs> slider, uh, controls everywhere. And I can just override everything. I like that. It's just a sweeping change across the app. Yeah. And if you end up having a bunch of different visualizations, like on a page, you might be like, I want this Cupertino one, or I want this Skia version, or I want this material one. And then you're going to yeah. get the same look and feel ideally across the platforms. Because there is a time when you may want that. Um, and sometimes those controls on the other platform just look better. So, <laughs> yeah. And this way you don't have to create overrides of every single one of those controls. Great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're at our five minutes on that one. So another question that came in to keep on our lightning talk rounds is, hey, when you're starting a brand new app, like how do you get started? Like, how do you develop the user interface? Do you sketch it? Do you go on a bike ride and think it in your head? Do you draw it <laughs> on a whiteboard? Do you go into uh, Photoshop and or, 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 you know, sketch and draw it out? Like, how do you get started to build your application? And 
Uh, I haven't started any new applications in a while, <laughs> although I have actually, mm-hmm. but I know Frank okay. is always creating new apps. <laughs> yeah, always, constantly. Well, that's because I create new apps in my head first. So it's much easier to code up in your head. The UI designer up there is really flexible. You can copy and paste very easily. So yeah, I pretty much always um, try to almost completely think through an app um, and Uh, you know it depends on your app if your app is like a big form input application i really do think tools like uh ui designers any sketch designers literally anything paper napkins you know whatever it takes whatever works for you that's all good and probably necessary if you're working in a team um but i definitely do the general outline and i even um kind of criticize the app in my head you know i try to have a nice fully working version in my head that i can poke around with and decide if i like using it or not am i crazy james do you do that too no i surprisingly do very very similar things i already have my device that i'm going to be developing for whether it's a windows machine a mac machine or a mobile device and i know that mobile or desktop toolkit so in my mind i have this toolbox if you will and a canvas that I can draw kind of like you're saying these controls on and start to flesh out some of the controls and the navigation through it. Now that's not really good long-term because my memory's not that great. So I can kind of forget what I'm doing, but I can start to see like, Hey, what's the base page is, am I going to be use fly out or tabbed pages or just a single page type application? What are some of the colors that I could be thinking of? Uh, and then I go to, some inspiration of like material up or dribble and start to see some of the other inspiration or other apps that are in that vein of what I'm trying to build. But if there's not, I mostly just start to lay down some controls on a, on a page and start to drag things around, uh, and Mm -hmm. start to play around with it. That's sort of the best way that I can get started. Uh, I recently started building this, little countdown timer application uh, a few days ago on Twitch uh, that I wanted so I could count down until the start of my Twitch stream. So the entire app was like, how many minutes do you want? What do you want it to say? Count down and it would write to disk. And in my mind, I was like, okay, I want something very, very simple. It's like a grid and has some buttons and there's a radio button and some numeric things. And in my mind, I knew exactly what I wanted it to look like before I sort of sat down. Uh, mm-hmm. It did take more time to get to there, but the the mind is there. But if it's more than a single or two pages, like when I was rebuilding the Hanselman app, which I'm actively doing, I'm pen and paper. I think once it's from my mind where I visualize a core concept, I go back down to pen and paper. And I just draw huh. boxes. It's like I've wow. been doing that for seven years, boxes and tabs and little icons on a page. We are so different. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I don't do any of what you just said over the last few minutes. I don't care about colors. I don't care about flyouts. I don't think about any of that stuff. What I do with my apps is I tend to write lots of demo apps that feature a feature that I want in the app Mm. that accomplish something. And so I spend the majority of my app design phase creating lots of little demos. Sometimes it's one demo, sometimes it's 10 demos, and then I end up combining them into an app. I don't make um, 
uh, navigation and architectural and coloring decisions basically until the last minute, mostly because I want the features to speak for themselves. And then I build a Chrome around those features instead of worrying about like whether this should go into a list view or not in the beginning. Mm. Yeah, that, that does make quite a bit of sense. And I find myself changing those things often. So that's probably the reason why you don't do it that way, because you can easily change all your colors or change your navigation. One little life hack that I did is when I started a new app, I created the first page uh, of the app was just a bunch of buttons that just went to the other pages of functionality. Yeah. That's the I was right like, way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but still in my mind, I'm like, I know how I want this app to look, mm -hmm. but I'm too lazy to start to write down the yeah. base navigation right now. <laughs> Speaking of navigation, let's navigate on to our next topic. And it is one kind of near and dear to my heart. It's WebAssembly. And I think in particular, we're going to talk about .NET on WebAssembly. And did this, uh, this must have come from a listener, but I don't know the exact question, but we have WebAssembly wishes written down. And I'm curious, James, have you been playing with WebAssembly? Do you have any WebAssembly wishes? So WebAssembly as a core technology, I think is brilliant, allowing multiple languages and even runtimes to some extent to be sort of run directly in the browser. Uh, to me, it's more of a, we'll say a modern day done right Silverlight um, with web standards. <laughs> Got to bring out that yeah. Silverlight. Because you know what? I love Silverlight. I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, and me too. I started to go down this timer application, which is kind of funny. And I go, should I be building a WebAssembly Blazor app? Because that Blazor would be my UI framework that I'll be using. And it's honestly, I was putting a string that counts down uh, on the page, but I would have to build some sort of configuration screen. And mm -hmm. then I thought, um, well, I could do that. And the nice part there is that the user would have to download some file, they could just run the web page and it would just run. So I thought that was one big benefit there of building something simple. And then I was like, well, the problem here is like, I have to then start to figure out the theming, right? Because I'm going to be outputting the text on another page that they'll have to put as web content. <laughs> so how do I do multiple pages? How do I theme that? Whereas if I just write this to disk, um, from a WPF or Mac application, it'll, it'll work. Uh, and then in OBS, they would go and theme it themselves. So the problem I had there was, was more of like, this is cool. And I think it's great that I could de deploy this easily as a file or put it on the web somewhere. But then I started to toy around with the fact that at least on windows itself, I could write a .NET core three application in WPF. And that included the entire runtime. And I was like, well, at least on Windows, this is kind of equivalent because the user doesn't have to worry about anything and it's just running. But um, I guess my WebAssembly wishes are a really, really rich and easy to use UI toolkit where I'm not building the most flashy marketing website. I'm building simple production type applications where I'm doing user entry, I'm doing data entry that I can deploy easily. I'm still not sure what that model looks like to deploy to give you an app um, necessarily or how I update that. So I still think there's a lot of like unknowns there. 
Wow, you want a whole new UI toolkit just for WebAssembly? Or are you just saying you want one of your better UI frameworks working on there? That one, the second one. Okay, cool. Ah, I have a much different list than you. <laughs> Look at us, merge conflicting all over the place. Um, I just want to give a, a news update that AOT is working on there, which is super cool. That means .NET's running kind of at its fastest fastest um, on there. Up till now, we've all been interpreted and all of that. For me, it's just speed, man. I, I hate that loading little spinner. You know, when I first did the the demo for Wii, I put a little spinner on there because I thought, oh, I'm so tired of watching this thing. And then everyone picked up that spinner and every .NET app starts with that spinner. And it was just like a stupid little, I, I never wanted it. I wanted to optimize it so I could get rid of that spinner and it just never happened and everyone adopted it. So my wish is people would stop using my spinner and figure out how to make things load faster. <laughs> That's my big one. Yeah, the I mean, the tooling seems to work. I've been using Blazor. I've messed around with Wii. I mean, that's the nice thing is that it's getting there and I'm still sort of waiting for the oomph moment. I guess my wish is when when is the double down moment going to happen where some company goes really all in on it? And that's mm-hmm. um, hard for me to to say because I work at a very large company that does a <laughs> lot of work in the in the web assembly space. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm waiting for whether that's a community movement, it's a company that goes all in and changes the distribution model or or other aspects and shows these real world use cases. That's I guess that's what I'm waiting for. Well, let's be clear. It's going to be games at first. Mm-hmm. All the games are just going to get recompiled for this so that they can run much faster than they can on the JavaScript engine. So I think games are going to be the killer app here, but we'll see how long it takes for games to bubble up into everyday apps running in WebAssembly. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I think more than anything, well, I may have been like, I want this and I need this. To me, it's a very exciting time because it means as a developer using one of those languages that supports WebAssembly, it means that I could easily go to yet another platform. I think that's what's exciting. Yeah, I love the distribution model of the web. I'm super jealous of that distribution model. Now, I do hate the fact that I don't know how to monetize the web, but I love the fact that I can just write an app and it runs pretty much everywhere. That's a great model. Well, while you're waiting for your web assembly application to load, let's take a break and thank our sponsor this week, Instabug. That's right. Instabug is an SDK that completely takes care of your bug reporting and user feedback needs. So this means that you can focus in on the debugging, fixing, and prioritization of your backlog. Now, I love Instabug because you can install the SDK in minutes, and it allows you to seamlessly enable two-way communication uh, with your users. So it's more than just like uh, crash reporting and bug fixing and things like that reporting back that we talk about quite often. What they do is they enable you to reach your users easily and also get that information. So let me tell you what this means in practice. This means that once you have the Instabug SDK in your app, your users can easily shake their phone or you can enable like a button press to send feedback. And then it will grab all of the networking logs, UI view hierarchy, device details, even grab a screenshot and process uh, a user steps along the way. And that will give you all the crash reporting 
back into your existing systems like Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, anything that you may be using. So then you get all that information and you're not just like, here's a stack trace, you know? Uh, and additionally, your users then can give you feedback back and forth directly in your application so they don't have to run to the app store like they probably would and give you a one-star review. So it gives you that nice little ahead of time to help your users through this two-way communication channel. Now, what's cool is that more than 20,000 companies around the world rely on Instabug, including Lyft, eBay, PayPal, and so many more. Now, we do have a special offer. All you got to do is head over to instabug.com slash merge, sign up, check out their SDK, and you can get a free Instabug t-shirt. That's instabug.com slash merge. Sign up, get a free t-shirt. And a big thanks to Instabug for sponsoring this week's pod. We made it. We made it halfway through, Frank. And I actually put this one, maybe I put this one on our list. We got a lot of questions about uh, some other mobile technologies. We talk a lot about iOS and Xamarin on here. But people were like, we want your thoughts on Flutter and and mm -hmm. some other, you know, what do you think about this? And it kind of had me thinking about a bigger scope of how we picked our technologies for our career and how we continue to pick our technologies going forward. So it's kind of a career languages, technology, lightning topic. Hmm. Does that sound interesting okay. to you at all? A little vague, but let's see what happens with it. So I guess I'll start too. Um, we do get a lot of Flutter questions and I never want to talk about it because honestly, I know very little about Flutter and all of its great advantages and how it's revolutionized the world. Um, the truth is, um, this is how we got to the topic. I said, I'm pretty invested in the technologies that I use, and I don't see any revolutionary changes that I can't copy myself. Um, Flutter is um, a different programming language, Dart, and it's a different programming model. But you know the funny thing about programming models, James? You can implement them in any language. <laughs> so, <It's> true. <laughs> yeah, just from my, like, well, everything's a Turing machine <laughs> mindset, I... I am very good at C-sharp and F-sharp, and I can pretty much program anything I want. I'm not limited by my architectures and programming languages. I am literally limited by my imagination. And so I don't get caught up in all these programming model and language wars. Yeah, I, you know, I think that Flutter has a lot of cool concepts being all custom drawn with Skia and being fast. It obviously has some drawbacks that it's a newer language, newer framework, you know, newer infrastructure. And to me, I guess when I started development, uh, you know, a long time ago, it was me picking up C sharp and .NET. It led into a great job out of college. And I really just enjoyed the entire in kind of the entire development experience from start to finish. So what I mean by that is while you're kind of talking about like, I can bring any of the other, you know, technologies or frameworks over, I sort of started to see that, but in an enjoyable way where I had Visual Studio as an IDE that I loved. Um, I had C Sharp, which is a program that I absolutely loved. I thought our IntelliSense was amazing. I saw a continued investment there. And for me, I guess I consider myself, you know, I used to say I consider myself like a mobile developer that uses Xamarin, but more than anything, it's like I consider myself a .NET developer. Like that's just what I am and have been for, uh, 14 years, 13 years. And for me, it's like, well, I love C sharp. I love .net, And it happens to be 
a, a type of framework and language that I can build for anything. So for me, it was like, okay, I was building this new app for the desktop and I could build it on Windows and I could build it on Mac and share code between all of them in a great IDE. And I was like, yeah. that's cool. And I could build it with XAML user interface or I could build it with the native user interface and I got to pick. And I thought that that was cool and I never had to leave the language. So that was the thing that it's like, I love that other things are innovating and doing cool things. And I enjoy that the, the technology that I'm in today is still innovating and doing cool things and I can still do what I want. Yeah. And the, the world honestly rewards specialists. If, uh, well, you're a C-sharp.net specialist. I am also, but you could be a Java specialist, a C++ specialist. You could be a Flutter specialist. It really doesn't matter. Um, as long as you're a specialist, that's what you get rewarded for. That's what you get big paychecks for, that kind of stuff. So it kind of doesn't matter which technology you deep dive into. I like the ones that have shown that they have long legs. Uh, I like the CLR for all the same reasons you said. Uh, I have actually a different, I have more of a programming language view of it. For me, it's the common language runtime that I love. I love the virtual machine. And I love that I can write any language. Say I start hating C Sharp. I can just go write any my own language, but still integrate with the huge number of libraries and all that. Anyway, this was, the point of this wasn't to extol .NET virtues. It's to say that um, A, specialization allows me that deep knowledge and it allows me flexibility. I, I know the thing inside and out, and so I can do anything with it. Um, when I see new programming models come by, I'm like, those are interesting. Maybe I'll copy some features from those. That's honestly how I look at things like this. And other times, if it is revolutionary, maybe I would jump shit. But at this point in my career, I don't know, man. I feel like <laughs> I haven't seen a computer revolutionary thing since like 1963. So whatevs. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, that would be the point if there is some new, if there is some new technology that comes out tomorrow and maybe it's the next revolutionary foldable thing that has a custom you know operating system and a custom language and has to, I have to build custom for it then maybe I'd try that out sure. you know yeah. like that sounds cool i mean when you got an iphone for the first time you probably had to write objective c code before we got c yeah. sharp on it you know um, but you know what you can probably port mono to it pretty fast <laughs> that's true that's also the other thing is yeah so it it becomes that point of of the long tail that I look at it, it's like, I've been doing this for a while. Not to say that any other framework or language doesn't have a long tail. Cordova has been along for a long time. Ionic is now yeah. taking that over. And if you're a web developer that bet on that, like you're pretty happy. And I have a lot of web developers that do React Native because they've bet on JavaScript and React itself. And now they have something that they like. I've bet on C Sharp. I think that's... Uh, my favorite programming language. So a different topic, changing it up. I was following a thread uh, via Hanselman, which I thought we could just sort of discuss a little bit because it comes off of that career languages talk and why, why we do what we do. And someone had tweeted about like your tech edition of unpopular opinions, basically. And Scott had re responded that, uh, that, you know, languages and frameworks come and go. We aren't teaching fundamentals. DNS, HTTP, TCP, systems architecture, base of the pyramid, stuff like that. Um, and he goes, a lot of people are going back and forth. And he goes, you know, the matter of the fact is 
even the latest distributed systems, like maybe Kubernetes, which I know nothing about, one of the needs is a solid understanding of HTTP, DNS, networking certs, and that's not hidden. So I want to kind of get your thoughts on kind of what we're teaching people and what people are learning. And is it the right stuff? Oh, my God, dude. So many opinions on this one. <laughs> um, I, I, I can look at this problem from so many levels. I can take it at face value. Um, let's say, are people teaching these low-level things? And flat out, yes, of course they are. Tons of universities are teaching these things. So whatevs, your argument doesn't matter there. But then the next level up for me is um, people learn these things when they need to know them. So your example of Kubernetes was great. Uh, maybe like people haven't really studied DNS in a long time because we all just had dub, 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 and it worked fine, blah, blah, blah. But now, yeah, now we're doing all these dynamic deployments on mini clouds and clusters and all that stuff, and DNS is becoming important again. So guess what? People learn about DNS. Um, you know, they're, they're, we don't have a burning of the Library of Alexandria problem here. We have the internet. It has infinite storage. Even if we don't have a practitioner of COBOL, you can go download the COBOL manual and learn COBOL. It's not rocket science. None of this stuff is rocket science, to be thoroughly honest. So I, I look at all of these, and it's all just like old man screaming at the cloud for me. And I think it's interesting and cute. That's about it. Well, I, you know, I don't know what kids are learning nowadays in school, I guess. That's my 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 kind of lack of knowledge in this space. So it's hard for me to kind of put my, you know, thumb on it. Just like I'm not really a super flutter expert, spent a lot of time in it. Hence, I don't feel like I can give a super crazy deep answer. The one thing I'll say is you and I were talking before the podcast and I said, you know, I enjoy the fact that I don't need to know the low crazy level HTTP and TCP protocols. I can just say get string asynchronous and that thing just returns it to me automatically uh, so if the frameworks and the languages that we're using on a daily basis are able to abstract that in a way where that becomes something that's not as important because it's so mainstream, it allows me to focus in on the actual important stuff that I want to, to crush on a daily basis. Absolutely. You learn what you need to learn. We're not losing information. Plus, I want to add to it that there are always weirdos in the world like me who just naturally want to learn the whole stack. Mm -hmm. I want to know how a computer works from the transistor level up. And I know I'm not alone. Uh, a few weeks ago, I read how to write your own kernel and your own bootstrapper for an IBM PC tutorial on GitHub. It was written by someone much younger than me, but they had this deep down understanding. They did all the research on how to boot up in an IBM PC, which is hilariously and ridiculously fun to watch, and wrote it all out in assembly. That person could easily learn how DNS works, easily learn how the HTTP protocol works. I have no fear that um, a motivated person can learn that stuff. And I think people are just like, oh, I wish, I don't know. I don't know what people are complaining about in this one. This is weird. Well, to me, and it, it comes down to the fact that, like you said, when you need to learn something, the knowledge is still there. I didn't know very much about TCP and UDP protocols until I needed to implement TCP and UDP protocols yes. into my applications. 
I learned all about multicast and like all these different things and when to use one over the other ones. And in a matter of, um, you know, a few days, I was not an expert, but I knew enough to get it done. Just like encryption or sort of handshaking of keys. I didn't know much about that. And then my coworker gave me a book and said, read the first two chapters. And I read those first two chapters. I was like, oh, cool. I get it now. Like I, I can understand that. So to me, I guess as long as I'm not, as long as we're teaching things that allow me to understand those concepts, that's probably what's important. Super cool. And I just have to put one last thing in here. I honestly believe low level coding and lower down on the stack is easier to learn and to comprehend. Thinking higher level, thinking more abstractly, thinking about integrations, that's harder. That takes time and experience and failure to learn. Low level stuff, bit twiddling, that stuff's fun and easy. Yeah. So let's move. <laughs> let's move on. We, we've said, I, I think we said our piece on that one. And I am so happy to announce the last topic because I love this one. I have had a lot of programming mentors throughout my career. Now, none of them have ever known that they were my mentor, but like a good creepy stalker person, they were. And um, it's the topic is quite simply stated, uh, people we respect and admire. And I think personally, I'm going to twist it to um, for my programming career, but I'm curious how you'll take it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So people we respect and admire. Um, I, I think I first went down the route of um, programming. And that's what I think about. And, uh, so I have three, I have a lot, but I'm going to go with three. So the first one is, uh, one of my instructors, which no one knows. Um, but his name is Phil Miller. He, uh, I admire him because he, he had a different look of the world of development in 2005. And, he was the one that became passionate about C sharp and .NET and the openness of the CLR, everything that we sort of talked about. And it was a time where everyone was learning C and Java. And he sort of went against the norm in uni to, to teach C sharp and .NET and interface-based programming mm -hmm. and really opened my eyes. So whenever I talk about how I got to where I am, I don't think I'd be here without him. So it's not a person that other people can admire, I guess, but I feel like we probably ha each have mm -hmm. someone like that in our lives that we can uh, admire and respect. Uh, that's a good one. I, I wasn't even getting to a personal level. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Maybe I just haven't run into the right people, but let, let's trade off. This will be fun. Um, for my first draft pick, I'm going to go with Donald Knuth, James. Mm. Donald Knuth. Um, I, I think we've talked about it before. I wasn't a computer science background. So when I decided to learn computer science, I just went to the source, Donald Knuth, and just started reading his books. And it turns out he was an incredibly thoughtful, not just intelligent in a computer science-y way, but just a thoughtful human being, obviously a perfectionist on so many levels, artistic, um, interested in philosophy, interested in religion, of just a very interesting person to learn about. You can just read and read about Knuth and discover more about him. And he was a real role model for me uh, growing up and becoming a programmer. I just hope someday I can be quite as thoughtful as him. My role models are usually that, just an attribute from someone I wish I could have. And for him, it's thoughtfulness. Very nice. I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading his Wikipedia page 
now and uh looks very very like an interesting human being so i want to go read some things got me on the reading list quite a life he's had (laughs) all right so i'll keep it on my my c-sharp uh lineage here if you will uh and then i'm going to switch it up completely and kind of hopefully blow your mind (laughs) but i will give it up to a person i guess after i got deeper into my programming that i started to follow his career i happen to work with him now his name is anders hausberg uh, and, uh, uh, wow. I love the Anders. I love what he had done, um, with, you would think I would say C sharp, but I would say turbo Pascal, big fan, fan of the show, turbo Pascal. One of my <laughs> original programming language is after C plus plus that I got really into to do UI design. Uh, and of course he was a lead architect of C sharp. Uh, I do love Mads. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, <laughs> when I thought of C sharp and followed the career, of a certain individual, uh, it was Anders. And I really say that while I've never met him personally, I've been in and around him in groups because I've seen him on campus. Uh, I've watched many of his talks and they were very inspiring and uh, gained a deep respect for him as a human being besides just the person that um, helped lead architect the programming language that I use. Uh, Someone once accused me that my programming career is just following Anders around. Whatever he's working on, that's what I (laughs) work on. I was like, darn it, they do kind of line up that way. (laughs) Yeah, I love all his stuff. It's a good one. Uh, I'm going to go with another programming hero, and this time it's Tim Sweeney of Epic Mega Games. Are they called it? Do they call themselves that anymore? Or is it just like epic now? Epic. epic. Just epic, I think. Epic. epic. It's just epic. <laughs> well, despite the bro name, <laughs> it's a very intelligent company with, um, I don't think he's the lead programmer anymore. I think he's more of a managerial role now. But um, wow, back in the day, he wrote the Unreal Engine and used to write fantastic technical articles. And better than that, he used to hang out on uh, game development forums and just answer questions and talk to people and share his knowledge. And I was so into all the code he wrote. Basically, he taught me object-oriented programming very indirectly. uh, I was so impressed with the Unreal Engine that I wrote my first decompiler. Yeah, decompiler, not just disassembler. I wrote a decompiler so that I could try to understand how Unreal works. And I used to just study my decompiled version all the time to understand what genius Tim Sweeney had accomplished in C++. It was fantastic. I learned so much. Wow. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of the Tim Sweeney. And funnily enough, my next sort of individual that I have a deep, deep respect uh, and admiration for comes from the video game industry uh, and from a different point of view. So not a developer, but from a game design and producer aspect, which is everyone's favorite Nintendo um, employee, Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, And you may know him from creating Mario and Legend of Zelda and Star Fox and F-Zero and Donkey Kong and Pikmin. So all of these amazing titles. However, you know, while I grew up playing his games, I ended up reading and watching a lot of um, sort of documentaries about him uh, as far as the reading goes, reading his interviews about how he goes about creating games and what goes into a game design uh, for what he does. And a few years ago, he sat down with Vox 
uh, uh, for a video. It was only five and a half or six minutes long, but he sat down and, and was able to really go over how he goes about designing a game, his a game, his entire design philosophy. And more than ever that he is this game designer that is so, um, I don't know. It's hard to put him at a certain level of creating these great titles, but being so aware of who's playing the game, the families, the people, and in touch with everything that's kind of going on around him that brings it into his games. To me, he really sort of turns a lot of normal traditional game development on its head that people don't expect. Um, And also as a public figure, as also someone that I admire for being able to get up on stage and give a presentation especially when he's presenting to people that aren't speaking his native tongue of Japanese um, when he's on stage delivering these things. Just to me, um, very inspirational and a person that I deeply admire at, at multiple levels there. So, Wow, I don't think I can top that. Um, hmm. Yep. Okay, excellent choice. <laughs> I actually don't know much about his career. I have to read a bio or something, or maybe just the Wikipedia page would do. Yeah. Is the Wikipedia page any good? It's very have good. Have you read that one? Very good, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you had three choices, and I don't know what to do now, because at first I was just going to talk about a few people, but I think, you know what I'm going to do, James? I'm going to do a lightning round within the lightning talk episode. <laughs> And I'm just going to mention a few names because whatever, we've we've gone well past our five minute mark on this one. So uh, let's just do the easy one. Miguel Ding, if you don't follow Miguel Diacaza, um, it's a lovely human being, does smart things, good chap to follow. Uh, Marco Ding, <laughs> so go see what Marco's doing in the app world. And so just those shout outs. And then I'm going to end with one more game programmer, John Carmack, because as a kid, um, he was all I was into because I was a performance nut and all that stuff. So I just can't have a list of my favorite people and have Tim Sweeney on it and not have John Carmack. It's like it's like the, the devil and the angel on my shoulder. They both have to be represented. So John Carmack, Tim Sweeney, and throwing Miguel and Marco. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I, there's so many more people I want to just, you, you know, could possibly put on the list. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you know, a billion other people. That, <laughs> yeah, you, you know. can't name your friends because everyone's like, hey, why didn't I make the list? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I'll let you put them on there. And I appreciate you dinging the bell. Like we always do. Well, it was fun. I, we went a lot longer on a few of them, but I think it was totally worth it. I had a, a lot of fun on these topics, Frank. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad we closed on this one. That was a nice, fun little ending to give some shout outs to some of our favorite people. Yeah. Well, let us know who you admire and that you simply love, whether it's in the game industry, in the development industry or something else. We would love to hear and see how you answer these lightning talks. Uh, so give us an email. Go over to mergeconflict.fm hit that contact button. Boom. You can also subscribe on all of your favorite podcast applications and feel free to leave us a review. We would love that. You can of course tweet at us. That's super simple. We love that at merge conflict FM. You can of course tweet at us personally. If you want to, you want to just contact Frank at Proclarum. I'm at James Montemagno. Just go ahead and get a contact with us. We love hearing from our listeners. So that's going to do it for episode 140 of merge conflict until next time. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.